Hi, and thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we meet an Ontario runner and dad who not only completed the recent Buffalo Marathon while pushing his two-year-old son in a stroller, he actually won the race. We find out how. We talk tech, including a recent decision by the European Union that will see a uniform charger required for all small and medium electronic devices within a few years. Will it come to Canada too? We look into a Canadian Taxpayers Federation report that reveals that while the Royal Canadian Mint may be known for making money, its board of directors appears to be good at spending it on business travel as well. We find out what they learned. But first, the former U.S. Ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman, joins us to talk about the first public hearings of the U.S. House Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol attack and the thoughts behind a new op-ed he's written titled It's Time for a Bigger, Bolder Partnership Between Canada and the U.S. First up, the chairman of the House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol has opened a primetime hearing earlier tonight declaring the attack put America's, quote, constitutional democracy at risk. Tuesday night's remarks from uh, from Benny Thompson, the Democrat from Mississippi, came as the House Committee uh, was about to show new video and did and other evidence from the deadly Capitol assault. The panel also planned to detail the backstory as Donald Trump tried to overturn Joe Biden's 2020 election victory. Thompson warned democracy remains in danger from the conspiracy that fueled that riot. January 6th was the culmination of an attempted coup, a brazen attempt, as one rioter put it shortly after January 6th, to overthrow the government. The violence was no accident. It represents Senate Trump's last stand, most desperate chance to halt the transfer of power. Of course, this was being aired in prime time in the U.S., just about everywhere, not everywhere. Fox News wasn't showing it. Uh, that was Benny Thompson, the Democrat from Mississippi. Meantime, on the other side of the country, Prime Minister Trudeau met with President Joe Biden today. Speaking of Joe Biden, on the sidelines of the Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles, topics included the war in Ukraine, energy security, supply chain issues, and, quote, both leaders reaffirmed the strong bonds between our nations. Well, joining me now is Bruce Heyman, who served as U.S. Ambassador to Canada from 2014 to 2017. And those will be words you'll be happy to hear. Welcome back. Thank you for your time. Pleasure. Good to be with you this evening. I guess we'll start with what uh, many of us, I gather, were watching on both sides of the border tonight was uh, was the January 6th committee. Um, really, I mean, it, it seems like such an important process. What did you make of the first night? First night is going quite well. I would tell you that this is important because not only are we documenting exactly what happened, but the committee's had investigative powers that has gone on for many months now, and they've had a whole series of interviews which has led them to the ability to now lay out their case to the American people. And this will happen not just tonight, but in a series of hearings, and at the end of the day, we will all know exactly what they know in terms of what took place on January 6th, which was, at least as they laid it out this evening, an insurrection attempt to overthrow the United States government by Donald Trump. It was interesting to see both uh, Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney there, a Republican. Um, but I gather that within, and this is Canadians watching from afar, but there is still a lot of division over these hearings and over the event itself. Uh, it, has, it seems to have shifted uh, quite significantly since, uh, since January the 6th of last year. 
Look, there, there are a lot of followers still of uh, Donald Trump and the belief set that he had. And he has spent a lot of money and time perpetuating, you know, what I consider to be the big lie about this election uh, being stolen from him. It was fairly executed. Votes were counted. He went to the courts some 60 times. He went to the courts. The courts did not find in his favor his own Justice Department, as was um, revealed tonight at, from almost top to bottom, uh, didn't believe it. And much of the staff of the White House didn't believe it. It was just Donald Trump and his continued use of his command of social media and engaging more radical elements of our society to you know, try to attempt to stop this uh, vote counting that was taking place on January 6th. I know this is a difficult challenge for for any committee right now, but is there any chance here that there will be consensus or at least some form of consensus on what happened that day? There will always be the other side. And I don't doubt that Donald Trump and many of the people who follow him will, you know, portray this as some political witch hunt um, or some, you know, fake set of hearings. But in all reality, this is you know, from top to bottom, you know, um, bipartisan in nature. It is, you know, there are people who have taken the oath of office and an oath that I took is swearing uh, to loyalty, not to a person, not to a president, but to the Constitution of the United States, defending it against enemies, foreign and domestic. And in this particular case, I think we have enemies domestic. And so, This is really important that we go through this process. What happens at the end of it? I don't know whether the Justice Department picks it up and, you know, executes, uh, you know, charges against uh, people within the White House. I mean, it's clear that charges now are being leveled um, at multiple levels against, you know, some of these proud boys and oath keepers and some of these more radical elements that were charged up by Donald Trump, uh, Peter Navarro from the White House team was charged basically for not um, working with the committee under subpoena. But, you know, we still haven't gotten to uh, the tip of the spear. I know you I know you interned at the U.S. House of Representatives back in the late 70s mm-hmm. for Congressman Charles Whalen. So this is a, a place and an a, and a institution, you know, inside out, not just from your days as ambassador as well. Um, is there a sense in the U.S. now, and I think a lot of Canadians watch this with a certain trepidation, is there a sense that this is at risk of happening again, that there that elections will, will constantly now be contested by the losing side? Maybe. I mean... You know, look, the mistake we all make is the experience we had yesterday is going to happen over and over again. And we all get fearful of it. Remember 9-11, it was just going to happen right away over and over again. Where we looked in every corner, we thought this is, you know, we're we're going to be under attack. We probably feel many of us feel that way about a pandemic. And, And of course, we feel that way a little bit about what's happened here with regard to the attempted takeover uh, of the Capitol during during this vote counting effort. That that all being said, I think the process that we're watching in the United States is a process that is healthy. You know, in our history, we, we've made mistakes and we've gotten ourselves caught up, whether it was slavery in the United States or, you know, um, much of what happened in the anti-communist era with the McCarthy trials that were taking place. You know, we we do course correct. And that's the benefit of 
the strength of democracy. But democracy in itself is fragile, and we can't take it for granted. So voting counts. It's important. And fighting for the rule of law, um, along with, you know, we can have political differences every day, but those differences should never arise to destroying the government. I did note that in Benny Thompson's opening remarks, he did mention the War of 1812, uh, which harkens back to a very different time in the history between our two countries, or not really countries at that point, but certainly uh, Canada and the U.S. historically. Uh, coming up, uh, you know, we, we know today that Prime Minister Joe Biden, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and Joe Biden met today on the sidelines of the Summit of the Americas. Ambassador Heyman, uh, former Ambassador Heyman, has just written an op-ed calling for our two countries to build a bigger and stronger relationship. It's a fascinating read, and I want to save uh, quite a bit of time to ask you about that, and that's coming up. Well, it's great to have Bruce Heyman, former U.S. ambassador to Canada, with us this half hour. He's just written an op-ed for the Chicago newspaper called It's Time for a Bigger, Bolder Partnership Between Canada and the United States. A fascinating read, makes some really interesting uh, points. Um, What I wanted to start with was, it's interesting that you talked about, given the steady erosion of free trade and democracy, that that our relationship can't be taken for granted. And I guess, given your vantage point, I guess for, you know, over time, we do take the relationship for granted at times. You know, when you have something that you really care for, but you don't invest in it, you don't spend time, you end up taking it for granted. But that puts the relationship, I think, always at jeopardy. Whatever relationship you have, whether it's a customer and a business, a love or partnership relationship or relationship between countries. And so, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things that kind of needs to be focused on on an ongoing basis. Now, our diplomats do that. I, uh, being the former ambassador, I know the current ambassador and both sides of our, our two borders. Um, they're working hard all the time. But what ends up happening in much of that is it becomes very transactional, especially in the fast-moving world of facing pandemics and wars and trade irritants that occur on both sides of the border. But you also have to take time to think about the long term. And it can't just be every day getting up and dealing with the you know, the irritants or or transactional items of the day. You've got to think about what are we going to invest in, what institutions and how are we going to do that? How do we codify it? How do we protect the relationship over a very, very long period of time? And you have come up with a proposal that would be a bit like a, uh, well, certainly a codification of it, uh, a formal treaty. What would that look like and what would it bring? So a formal treaty, why did I say treaty? First of all, we do so many things together. We have a North American uh, aerospace agreement that protects North American, not only um, our airspace, which happened during 9-11, happens every day, but now aerospace and sea. And the, and the prime minister just visited the NORAD facilities this mm-hmm. week. Um, we have NAFTA, which covers much of our trade. We have a pre-clearance agreement, which covers how we can, uh, many Canadians can enter U.S. customs right there in Canada at many airports. We have lots of agreements. But when you codify an agreement through Parliament and through Congress, and you get it passed in a treaty form, then future presidents or prime ministers who may try to sully the relationship will have a much more difficult time doing that. And after having watched how Donald Trump behaved, And having seen how more radical forces are rising globally, I suggest that we look at the relationship and find a way to codify it such that it's bipartisan on 
both of our countries or multi-party agreement in Canada and that we get ourselves to a point where we can codify it and protect the relationship long term. And that's through a treaty. What would that, I mean, how difficult would that be to to undertake and, and what kind of machinations would it take uh, between the two sides to try to come up with something like that and agree on it, given, as you mentioned, the irritants, the politics, the changes in regimes? Oh, it's, but I, I suggest this and we write about it. It isn't easy. In fact, it's really, 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 really hard. But that should never stop us. It never has before. You know how I end the piece is, you know, the saying, go big or go home. As the saying goes, I say, we're already home, so let's go big once again. And so the point being, think big, shoot for the stars, um, but at least we'll focus on those things that are important to us, important to Canadians, important to Americans, and get them codified so we can push ahead. Can we get a modernized border? Can we have agreement on energy? Can we work on the Arctic? Can we work on cyber protection for both of our countries in a world where um, cyber is going to be, you know, very much challenging supply chains, pre-clearance of goods. We can go on and on and on, but there's so many places that we can work on. And I didn't want to, you know, write about each one of those because I would like, you know, the two countries to work together to identify where that agreement and overlaps and we can come together. Yeah, I just had a, I did a fascinating panel discussion on borders and just how successful the European Union has been considering people never thought that it would work with all these countries who had for so long defended their borders quite vigorously. And it doesn't, I can't see why it wouldn't work between our two nations if we found a way to at least agree on things that would make crossing that border easier considering how much trade goes back and forth. I had a, a quick question for you. We, there was the parliamentary budget officer came out today with some statistics on Canadian defense spending. And I know this something, this is something that you brought up uh, back when you were ambassador and something that President Obama brought up, something President Trump brought up, although albeit in very different ways. Uh, but Canada is still falling far short of 2% of GDP on spending on defense. Um, has that been something that the Americans have, have long tried to encourage Canada to do? Is there is that an irritant in our relationship, uh, Canada's defense spending? Well, it's something that we've worked on, and it's something that I communicated very clearly to both uh, the Harper uh, government and the Trudeau government. So it, it isn't about any one party in Canada. And the fact of the matter is, look, I get it. You're, you're not going to need attack military equipment. That's not who you are. And so you also don't need a monstrous uh, North American defense military budget because you've got the United States right next door. So then you have to think about how do you creatively meet your NATO commitments how do you meet that commitment as a partner, as a sit-next-to partner in NORAD with the United States, and do it so that it fits um, the Canadian, you know, spirit of how you think about defense spending, and at the same time, you know, meet meet these global commitments? And I think there are creative ways of doing it. My guess is we're going to see an announcement of a significant modernization of our NORAD relationship. That will, in part be uh, a pay down of some of this, you know, 2% of, uh, uh, of your economy should be spent toward uh, military goods and defense goods. And look, the threat is, is large out there, especially when, you know, Russia's demonstrated they can just go next door and do what they've done to Ukraine. You know, who's to say that they stop there? And why would anybody naively think that that's 
if they win there, why would they stop there? They haven't demonstrated that historically. And they, they, they haven't interfered with our elections. And, you know, they have quite significant cyber capabilities. So, you know, there are ways that we can work together and I think meet these numbers and still keep the soul of, uh, of Canada in the, in the right place and how you think about military spending. Bruce Heyman, thank you so much for your time tonight. I highly recommend the op-ed. It's called It's Time for a Bigger, Bolder Partnership Between Canada and the United States. Thanks for joining in tonight. Thanks, everybody. Be well, and hopefully I'll get up, up north very soon. Well, I know Father's Day is coming up a little later this month, and this is just a wonderful father and son story. Uh, two years ago, marathoner, Lucas McEnany, he's from the uh, Hamilton area, got a perfect gift, a stroller that allowed him to run with his young son, Sutton. Well, his wife bought it for him, uh, hoping uh, that it would help his little one fall asleep so they would take runs together. He was a runner, hadn't been running much since the birth of his son, uh, but he started again and uh, Sutton became his training partner. Well, two years ago, two years later, uh, just recently, He crossed the finish line of the Buffalo Marathon before anyone else while pushing that stroller, while pushing his two-year-old son uh, right across the finish line. So not only did he do that for 26 and a little bit miles, he finished first. It's such a fascinating story that I I had to talk to Lucas McEnany. So joining me now from the Hamilton area is indeed marathoner and father and recent Boston Marathon winner, Lucas McEnany, thanks so much for your time and congratulations. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's uh, yeah, it's great to be on. So, so tell me a bit about uh, about the race itself. You, you managed to win, um, it, you know, almost twenty seconds ahead of your nearest rival, pushing a stroller. It's a it's an amazing story. How was the run with the stroller? Uh, a lot of fun, and I've been running with the stroller for uh, over two years now with my son in it, and uh, so it's just kind of second nature now at this point, but this was obviously the first time we were able to, uh, to actually do a race together. I had to get special permission to do it, and uh, and I was able to, and um, I told them I was trying to do a Guinness World Record, so that, that made it more alluring to them, and um you know, I had a good idea that we could probably win the race because uh, the way things have been since post-pandemic, there's there's generally less less money going around at these um, you know these these events when they, you know they've been in uh, virtual for the past couple of years. So to to be able to go into a race and uh, and win it pushing a stroller is a is obviously a pretty fun and exciting story for for my son and, and I to to tell for many years to come. Yeah, how did Sutton enjoy being sort of uh, wheeled through the streets of Buffalo? Yeah, he loved it. I mean, the, the Buffalo was a great city to do it in. Like, there was just so much uh, support, and uh, it was very inspiring the whole way. Um, yeah, people were just were, were, were wonderful. Um, this is very safe. There was every corner. There was. Um, our intersection there was police presence there so you knew that you know we weren't going to have some um cars coming onto the the course or anything like that and then the other runners and spectators like they they loved it they just there were all kinds of cheers and stuff and um and it helped me as well and gave me inspiration my son just loved that there was so much to see and uh, being in another city so he he would point at all the 
the cool things along the route that he likes. And he's, you know, he's really into cars and trucks and, um, and police vehicles, emergency vehicles. So, uh, we would talk about that the whole race and, uh, it was the most I've ever talked during a marathon, so <laughs> it was pretty fun. I was going to say, I, having to, yeah. I, at that age, they, uh, he's two, right? So at that age, they yeah. ask a lot of questions, right? So Yeah, he does, and he doesn't like to be ignored either. So <laughs> you know, if, I, if, if I'm pushing him and uh, I'm the only one there to talk to him, I, better, I have to respond, that's for sure, when he's, when he's talking. Um, the spectators must have been at least somewhat surprised that the race leader was, <laughs> was pushing a stroller. Yeah, people were they're pretty shocked, and 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 in a good way. Like they just thought that it was the coolest thing. A lot of people were saying that along route, and, uh, and yeah, it really, uh, it really kind of lifted every everybody we we ran by. They they were pretty pretty excited about it. So um, yeah, and and you thinking back on it, it's it. I don't know if it's ever been done before. <laughs> Maybe not there. Um, no. This whole this this kind of dates back to a really great Father's Day present you got back in in twenty twenty because of course you've been to the Pan Am Games. You're you are an experienced marathoner who's won races before, but I guess you were getting back into running um, a while back, and and then you got this gift. Tell me about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, my son was born in 2019 and I didn't really run much at all, um, leading up to his birth. And then even afterwards, he was, uh, it was just kind of all hands on deck trying to take care of him and be a father. And, um, and I was happy with kind of that, uh, new stage of my life. And then, you know, as he got older, we realized like he'll be able to start doing these runs and he just liked being in the stroll, like his, his regular stroller all the time. Anyways, he would nap really well in it. So we decided like, let's do a running stroller. If, you know, if I'm going to actually run with him, we need to get a proper running stroller. Otherwise I'm going to damage the, the regular stroller. So, so we did. And yeah, my wife got it for me as an early father's day gift. And we got it literally like a week before we went into lockdown and, and none of us knew lockdown was was coming. And then when it happened, we all thought it was going to be a couple of weeks. And then it was obviously a lot longer than that. And uh, and so, oh yeah, I was running with Sutton every day, um, you know, and it was good for everybody. It was good for my wife. It was good for me. It was mental and physically. And it was, uh, it was definitely good for my son to, you know, just take naps and uh, to be outdoors and get, getting fresh air. He, he was your, he became your training partner in some ways. Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm, and you know, I've not someone who's had a lot of training partners over the years, especially um, as I, you know, started working full time as a as a retail manager at Running Room. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done all my training alone since 2012. Um, so, uh, other than like coaching, so. Um, so to have him as my training partner for 90% of my runs the past couple of years is pretty, was pretty cool. And what better training partner, right. Than your own son. So, um, I loved it. Yeah. I I mean, I remember back to that, that famous movie many, many, many years ago, I think 50 years or 60 years ago now called the loneliness of a long distance runner. It tends to be a pretty solitary sport, but in this case, you've really made it kind of a bonding experience, which is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it just, it's good for both of us. And, and, 
And for sure, we have a lot of conversations on our runs and um, it, it is quite, quite special. And, and now he's at the age where every run I do with him and even, even since the Buffalo Marathon, we end up at a, a playground, we run around and play and, and then we run home and have a snack or a treat when we get home. And so it's just, it's, it's all, it's special now. And it's, it's just so much better for, for both of us just to get out of the house, not be on, in front of screens and things like that. So uh, we love it. Um, you you alluded to this earlier because there is, in fact, a world record for uh, running a marathon yeah. with a stroller held by a Canadian, no less. Um, yeah. I don't think most people know that. So that's what you were. That's what you set out to break. I, get, I gather you, you just missed it. Just. Yeah, we missed it by two minutes. And uh, yeah, we when I it was about a year ago uh, where I realized like it was a, a realistic goal that we could attain together. So so I thought, OK, let's get serious about training and and get ready for it and just pick the the perfect marathon to do it at the perfect time of year to do it at because you don't want it to be too cold for for him you there's two and a half hours in a stroller so i really wanted it to be a nice sunny day that we could do it at and then and you know 15 degrees was was probably ideal in terms of not being too hot for me and and being cool enough for or sorry yeah and being warm enough for him that he could he could really enjoy it. And the weather was perfect and the course was perfect. It was flat and the race organization was amazing. So we couldn't ask for a better uh, scenario to do it in. And um, yeah. And you know, the fact that we missed the record was, uh, you know, I accepted about <laughs> five kilometers left in the race because I was on pace to do it up until about five K to go. But uh, my legs just, just didn't have, <laughs> have what it takes at the end there. And I slowed down quite a bit, but luckily not, too slow that I couldn't uh, at least pull off the win. So it was pretty special that we could still, still win the race and that, um, you know, just have an experience to reflect on for many, many years. Yeah. He'll never forget those photos. I mean, technically he crossed the finish line before you did, right? I know it's the run. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll give him credit for it for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, it must be. I mean, if, for anyone who's never seen marathoning live, I remember watching the marathon at the London Olympics, and and it and, and others yeah. as well. You never really understand how fast uh, someone like you is going. I mean, to run a marathon mm-hmm. in two and a half hours, you're going fast. Is there any challenge mm-hmm. just when it comes to pushing the stroller and running at that pace? I mean, it's more difficult, and the more hills there are, more turns there are, the more more acceleration which is going to to you know increase the heart rate right so um so i was i was pretty conscious or uh, cautious with with my heart rate i would watch it and see um as see it rise as we went up certain hills and so you 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 have to be kind of um you know just thinking about it otherwise you can you can really overwork it pretty early on um the 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 initial part of getting used to running with one hand and always having one hand on the stroller, I mean, you learn that um, the first few weeks of running with them. It's awkward at first, but then I got used to it pretty quickly. And so it was kind of second nature there. It's more work and it's not as efficient only using one arm for, you know, that kind of arm swing. Um, but in terms of like the actual pace, I, I don't know if it, makes a difference of more than 10 seconds a kilometer compared to what I could do if I wasn't uh, um, pushing a stroller, but definitely other factors are there, you know, the amount of turns and, um, and hills will also factor in, but for the most part, it doesn't, it doesn't add too much extra work, 
those strollers are made to go fast. They roll really well and they glide really well. So what does mom, what does does mom think about all this? Uh, she thinks it's crazy. Like all the attention from this and, and I kind of do too. I mean, it's, it's great. And then obviously she loves, you know, she loves it just like I do. And, um, she thinks it's, uh, an amazing accomplishment as well. And, and, uh, an amazing accomplishment for Sutton as well. But, you know, we're always worried about his, uh, safety as, as she is. And, uh, so, um, as much attention we are, we also want to keep protect Sutton as much, as much as we can too. And, um, yeah. so yeah, no, she's very happy about it and excited about it. And, uh, and we're both surprised on how much attention it's grabbing for sure. Yeah, I mean, what really touched me about it was was the father son aspect of it. I mean, it's remarkable yeah. that you could run a marathon that quickly pushing a stroller. But just the whole idea mm-hmm. of, of 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 you know, I mean, I used to play pitch and catch with my dad, which is a very very different from running a marathon. But it's yeah. great to be able to do those things together if you enjoy them. You know, um, yeah. I noticed that that the record holder uh, was pushing his daughter, who was four at the time. Mm-hmm. So you still have you still have a few years few years left. Will you try this again, or was this a one off? I think it's a one off. Um, and for for me, it was never really about breaking the record. It was more about creating um, an, an experience that would kind of top off the uh, the two years of training we've done together. Um, so because you know he's he's old enough now that he's got his own energy to burn, and um, so you know the doing long runs with him and doing long races with him, it's just not he enjoys it enough but he'd rather be burning his own energy so uh, if if anything the next race we do together is going to be a kids 1k where we can both run it together holding hands and uh and that would be probably more special to me than than trying to break a record and the reality is i don't know if we could top this experience right so even if we did go and try and break the record in a few months um would it really hold the same kind of uh you know value to us that that it would have if we you know, compared to what we've already done. Right. So we've already created that wonderful bonding experience and that, that memory we're going to cherish forever. And from now on, I think it's just going to be the occasional fun run to the playground and, you know, and maybe some uh, kids races together. Lucas McEnany. Thank you so much for sharing your story. It is a wonderful one. Thanks for your time. Okay. Thank you. Many, many years ago, as part of my duties as, an, as a parliamentary correspondent at Global News, I went to the European Union, and part of our trip there involved learning how the European Union works, and it is the most bureaucratic place that you will ever see. If you think Canadian politics is bureaucratic or Canadian political institutions are bureaucratic, it's nothing. The European Union is, is a monster of bureaucracy, but... All those smart people often get together in one place can some of come, come, sometimes come up with some really great ideas. And man, do they carry weight when they do. When the European Union passes new rules, most of the rest of the world falls into line pretty quickly because you don't want to lose the European market. So this was a really interesting one. Earlier this week, um, the European Commission, which is the EU's executive branch, uh, reached an agreement whereby cell phones and handheld electronic devices in the EU will now be required to have a common charging port. That's according port, rather, according to an agreement reached Tuesday. Really, it's a way to cut down on electronic waste, they figured. Was, if you're anything like me, I have chargers 
that I have no idea what they what they use. I don't know why I don't throw them away. I guess I feel bad about throwing them away. But I have chargers to things that I, I don't know what they attach to. I don't know what they charge. And I have devices for which there are absolutely just no chargers. I mean, I have a cell phone that I used to use in Afghanistan. I don't know where the char- I don't know how to charge it. I don't know how you would charge it these days. So this seems like a pretty good idea to me. Um, basically, what it means is Europe in the European Union, at least, you won't have to spend too much time rummaging around for a charger in the future. So as of 2024, tablets, digital cameras, video game consoles, headphones, portable speakers, e-readers, portable navigation devices, keyboards, uh, mice, and earbuds will need to be equipped with the port laptop manufacturers have until 2026 to implement the universal charging port in their products. So is this a good idea? Will other countries follow suit? Will companies push back? Joining me now with more is Micah Garbo. He's the host of Get Connected, the app show. Mike, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Oh, great to be here. Thanks. So, I mean, this sounds like a great idea, but with always with great ideas, there's always some sort of catch. So is there a catch here or is this just kind of an interesting idea? I think it's been going this direction over the past couple of years uh, anyway. Uh, you know, specifically Apple's probably one of the bigger ones uh, that will be affected by this uh, change because they do have their lightning connectors for their iPhones and many of their iPads. But even if you look at Apple uh, nowadays, uh, a lot of their newer iPads and all of their MacBooks all use the USB-C uh, connector. So I think it was only a matter of time that uh, they, they went that route as well. I guess Apple were the only ones. I mean, at least according to the European Union, Apple objected to it uh, and said that it uh, it stifles innovation, uh, which I, I guess I, I don't know. Does that sound legitimate to me? It stifled having to pay twenty five bucks for a new a new uh, charger plug. But uh, uh, but does it stifle innovation? Do you think? Uh, you know, it might in uh, I, I guess in in some ways uh, now that uh, you know they're all on the same uh, standard uh, you know the standards boards uh, that come out with the USB standards uh, I think in many cases they take a little bit longer to get consensus before they kind of go to the next iteration of uh, of USB and pretty well for any type of electronics so uh, I, I guess in one way yeah but at the same time I, I think they're right like you know I've literally got you know, these drawers full of these old chargers. I still keep them. I don't know why, just in case, uh, you know, I come across one of my devices in one day that still uses <laughs> uses that. So, uh, and even now it's kind of a pain in the butt, right? Because, you know, I've got so many electronic devices. I've got laptops and tablets and iPhones and Android stuff. And having to switch between, you know, the lightning connectors and the USB-C connectors sometimes is... Uh, uh, a little bit of a hassle. So I, I think this is going to be a good thing for consumers. You know, and, you know, the stats uh, look pretty good uh, as well. You know, they, they say that by going to a universal standard, it, it could save, uh, you know, European Union citizens up to $250 million a, a year and uh, over 11,000 tons of e-waste uh, as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm the same as you. I have these chargers. I always picture someone in an emergency running to the door saying, "My phone has has died," and it's a you know some obscure like it's an old BlackBerry or something. You think, "Oh, my, I have one of those. I'll just go upstairs into my box full of charges and find it for you." Uh, yeah, I have millions of chargers at home. I don't know why I keep them either. Uh, imagine it's one of those things. We might as well take a picture of it because we can show it to someone one day. People will be, why did you have so many chargers for so many devices? That's um, funny. The e- but, you know, it's yeah. funny because, uh, you know, Apple, I think, 
they'll probably just even go wireless in the next two years anyway, and they won't even right. have any ports on their iPhones uh, any anymore. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think Apple's always been kind of uh, a little further ahead than a lot of the other uh, tech companies, uh, you know, in the, uh, you know, the gadget uh, space. I mean, the Lightning Connector, when it came out, was uh, a huge improvement over what was out at the time. You know, the, the micro USB, uh, you know, connectors, which could only fit in one way. And the Lightning Connector could yep. go, you know, both ways and... Uh, it was much faster at transferring data as well. Yeah, no, the Lightning co- co- connectors are great. I guess, it, what does that mean, though, for, for Apple products then in, uh, oh, I guess, first and foremost, as I was mentioning earlier, the European Union, often when they pass something, because it's such a, a large block uh, and so important to so many different retailers around the world and companies, usually when where the European goes, other co- countries tend to follow eventually. Uh, do you see this happening elsewhere relatively quickly? I, I think so. Uh, you know, it, it would be, I think, cost prohibitive for companies like Apple to make two different chargers for their, their, their phones. They would standardize on, on one and just have kind of that universal throughout uh, the world. So uh, I, I think once the EU goes that way, uh, North America and the rest of the world will go that way as well. What kind of impact would it have then on existing Apple products? So say you have gone out and dropped 25 bucks on one of those new fast speed chargers, at least the plug, since they don't give you the plug anymore. Um, in a few years, will those be, will those be obsolete? I mean, not obsolete for this current phone, but you won't be able to use them with future devices. Well, the, the charging blocks will still be okay. You can still just uh, get uh, a new cable for it, uh, essentially, right? So, uh, right. you know, if it goes USB-C, uh, you just get a USB-C cable and it'll still plug into that fast charger. So not, not an issue. Good enough. Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> the e-waste thing I thought was fascinating because I, I I thought of it when I first read the article. I thought, oh, interesting. That's that's great for consumer convenience. But then realized what the EU was really pointing to as its reason for doing this was just the sheer amount of waste that having different chargers creates year after year. Well, they're right. I mean, you said it yourself. I have got, I've got like you know probably thirty pounds of cables and charging blocks sitting in my garage in a you know a big tub, uh, which I'm going to get to this weekend and get rid of a lot of that. Ah, sure, you, it. sure you will. <laughs> yeah. <exactly. laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe. We'll, we'll, we'll see. But yeah, I, I, there's no doubt that it's going to reduce uh, waste. You know, why would you need then like, you know, three or four different chargers when one, you know, charging block and one, one cable can basically do the same thing? You know what I mean? So it's, there's no question it'll save on, on waste. And you were mentioning this earlier, Mike, but I, I suspect there will come a time when people looking back at these IDs, these houses full of chargers. I mean, we must have seven different chargers in the house. There's I, there's an iWatch one. There's an iPhone one. There's obviously there's one for the laptop, for laptops. There's another one for the, uh, for my headphones because they take the old, uh, USB-C charger. Uh, there, there must be, and then another one for another set of headphones that I have. There must be, we must be heading towards a time where that will be the next frontier for obsolete. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess we'll have to wait and see. I, I, I think with the USB-C standard, it'll be around for many years as far as the form factor is concerned. And uh, I, I think wireless is going to happen in the next five to ten years. Uh, you know, most of the devices we have will uh, will be able to be charged wirelessly on you know wireless charging pads. We'll start to see that built into a lot more furniture now in restaurants and cafes and bars. They'll have the charging pads built into the uh, the actual tables uh, themselves. So um, I, I. I don't think there's going to be huge new iterations as far as what the cable or the connector is going to look like. Uh, you know, obviously they'll get faster, uh, but uh, I think wireless will be the next way. Yeah, just getting rid of the cables altogether at some point, right? Where you just get to do everything uh, wireless and clean up the clutter. That would be nice. That would be nice. That would be a dream, definitely. 
Yeah. Uh, some other innovations this week. We heard uh, from Apple this week about uh, unsending stuff, unsending ma- messages, which seems like a really, uh, a really kind thing for them to do. We'll talk about that after this. It's a pleasure to have Micah Garbo, host of Get Connected, the app show with us this half hour. We were talking about uh, chargers. The European Union has mandated that there be one uniform charger for all small and medium-sized devices within the next few years within the European Union, uh, a little bit longer to get larger devices, uh, 2026 for those ones. And also, uh, generally speaking, the uh, EU, when they pass uh, new regulations, usually everyone else follows suit because it's such an important market for everybody that uh, they follow suit. And we were talking about how many chargers people have in their drawers. Mike, everybody, it seems, everybody has tons of chargers lying in drawers. Why is it the one thing we don't get rid of, I wonder? I mean, I know how frustrating it is to have to go buy one when you forget one. That's the worst part. So maybe we're just horrified to horrified to part with them. Or there's a lot of hoarders out there, tech hoarders, just essentially. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting. People still have a lot of these old devices. I've got... Uh, uh, a friend uh, that uh, has an accessory company, they sell cables to all the major retailers, and uh, they sell several hundred um, of the older 32-pin connectors, uh, you know, for the old iPhones, before Lightning really? cables, uh, yeah, yeah uh, a month. Like, uh, it, it's amazing <laughs> that uh, they still sell that many, and uh, it just shows that uh, a lot of people have the older devices. So uh, I think yeah. that's going to be the same for, uh, you know, all the Lightning-connected uh, devices uh, as well. I still charge my old iPod classics every once in a while, even though I don't use them. I just like to charge them to make sure they're still working. <laughs> anyway. yeah. Uh, yeah, I've got yeah. like, I've got a, a drawer full of iPods, you know, all the different uh, iterations as well. I really got to get exactly. into my garage and organize all this stuff. Yeah. Well, I won't, I won't hold you to it, Mike, because I, I should do the same, but they're all comfortably tucked away in a box and I think they'll stay there for a while longer. Uh, some interesting news this week from Apple, just about iMessages, because uh, I guess for a long time, you know, you can't unspread butter and you can't retract uh, uh, that message you sent in haste, in anger, in uh, you know, in, in whatever for whatever reasons you wanted to unsend it. But this week, uh, a bit of a bit of mercy from uh, from Apple, at least. Uh, what have they done? This is about freaking time. Uh, basically, if you're an iPhone user, in, when you update to the latest iPhone 16 the operating system, that'll be coming out in the fall. When you send uh, a message uh, to uh, your friend, coworker, or, or family, uh, you've uh, got 15 minutes to unsend it. Uh, if you've uh, sent out a drunk text or maybe you kind of regretted some of the words you sent in, in, the, in that message, you can basically hit uh, an unsend button and uh, it will recall it uh, out of their, uh, their message folder. I, I can hear friendships being forever repaired. I can hear relationships being, for, fights being avoided. Uh, what, why did it take them so long? And can you undo it if the person has seen it? I guess you can't, obviously not. No, I mean, if they've seen it or they've taken a screenshot of it, I, I imagine, uh, you, know, the, you know, the horse has left the barn there, uh, essentially. But yeah. again, uh, you know, there are a few caveats. Uh, the other person also has to be running uh, uh, the iOS 16 uh, update uh, as well. So it only works on iPhones. Uh, they all have to have the same operating system uh, as well. And uh, iOS 16 is only going to work on iPhone 8s and later. So if you've got an older one and you want to be able to unsend messages, it might be time to upgrade yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, you can't just pretend to the person. No, I never sent that. Uh, I read it. No, you didn't. It was never sent. I think um, the bigger thing. Yeah, I think the bigger thing for me is that you can actually go back and edit the text as well. I don't know right. what's happening with autocorrect lately, but I'm just sending all sorts of crazy messages because I'm just typing them really fast, and autocorrect gets in there and just changes my words into something you know 
not so. So now, same type of thing. You can go back in and actually edit the text to correct any uh, spelling errors or any thoughts that you're having uh, as well. Yeah, I don't know what's happening. Yeah, same with autocorrect. It's it's starting to dish out the most obscure and bizarre, unrelated words to things that that uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. I always forget. But you know, you're trying to spell something fairly common and fairly relevant to your sentence, and it pops out something completely unrelated, like some sort of strange, uh, uh, sort of absurdist painting or something. And oh, then you no, send it's crazy. It, course, My wife right? was messaging one of her friends uh, the other night, and I think she was saying, you know, I'll phone you later. And somehow, autocorrect put it to hot tinkle. <laughs> which just was, was just insane. So it would be nice if you could go back and correct the hot tinkle. It would, yeah, yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, anything else? Any other innovations emerging? I mean, people always watch what uh, what Apple's up to. Are they anything else interesting coming out of that? Yeah, there's going to be a lot of updates. Uh, the the lock screen is going to see a major uh, revision. Uh, essentially, uh, you'll be able to go in and really customize it now. There's also going to be live widgets. So, uh, for example, if you're following uh, you know the Canucks Calgary game, uh, instead of having to go into a web browser or, or your favorite app, you can actually have the score in real time right on the lock screen. Or if you're waiting for an Uber. Mm-hmm. Instead of going into the Uber app, uh, on the lock screen, there's like a little car, and uh, it'll show you how close it is to, to your destination. So, uh, th- I mean, there's going to be all sorts of cool things that will happen out of that. Also, uh, Apple Pay is uh, being upgraded, too. Uh, okay. Starting off in the U.S., uh, I don't know when it's going to come to Canada, but they have a new feature rolling out called Apple Pay Later. Uh, basically, oh. you can buy something, and then, uh, you know, I think you have to put a little money down, but then uh, you can do four more payments over the next six weeks with no interest ah. and no fees. Interesting. I, I mean, I don't know whether, given the cost or everything these days, I'm sure that's that's welcome. I'm not sure. Uh, I wonder how that works in terms of how you owe and who comes collecting when, uh, you know, when, if your iPhone constantly reminds you that you owe them money, for instance. That might be, uh, that might <laughs> yeah, be, your uh, iPhone's going to be shaking you down now. Where's, where's exactly. the cash, Mike? Where's the cash? Where's the ca- Mike. Uh, I need Mike, to get to yeah. buy groceries, man. <laughs> um, fascinating. What is, so it, one of the things my wife always asks me about, because she was really, she's a, always been very up on mobile payments. Have they taken off here at all? Have we seen, I mean, clearly during the pandemic, we saw more use of contactless, but uh, how is that being taken up here these days? Because I don't seem to see as much of it here in Canada as I do in other places. Uh, I, I think the pandemic's really accelerated that uh, that whole trend now. So, uh, you know, we've even seen with the uh, the limits for uh, contactless payments go up. I mean, it used to be like twenty five, fifty bucks. Now it can be in the hundreds of dollars. You can just basically tap your your card. Even Apple uh, now as well, uh, they've got a new uh, tap to pay feature uh, that uh, will allow you uh, coming up uh, to basically use your phone as a uh, credit or debit terminal now. So you see in a lot of uh, retail stores and a lot of markets, you know. People have got those little square readers. Uh, you can basically uh, tap those to, to make payments. You won't even need that anymore. You can basically just tap the person's iPhone and uh, they'll be able to take the payment. So uh, we are going to a, a digital currency world. There's no question. And it, it'll be wireless and contact-free. Michael Garbo, thanks so much. Good luck with your uh, with your cleanup in the garage this summer with all your wires. I look forward to seeing photos of you t- trying to untangle some of them. <laughs> Thank you very much. The Canadian Mint is uh, best known for making money, literally, uh, but perhaps it should spend some more time worrying about how it spends it, according at least to new research from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. 
Uh, through freedom of information, the organization found that members of the Mint's board of directors took full advantage of the organization's quite generous, it seems, travel policy. The bottom line, in the five meetings held from the start of 2019 to the start of 2020, board members expensed close to $140,000 in meeting travel costs. Well, here to tell us more about it is Chris Sims, the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Chris, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having us. This is an interesting study. It caught my eye when you tweeted it this morning, or at least when the CTF tweeted it. Mm-hmm. So what were, you, what were you looking for and what did you find? Well, we were just hunting around because, as we know, every dollar counts and every dollar used by the Canadian Mint in this context is taxpayers' money. So we were checking to see where these board members and folks were staying uh, when they were working. And it turns out they spent close to $51,000 on hotel stays and close to $74,000 on airfare. Now, these are not, you know, you know, Super 8 motel stays. They were staying routinely and exclusively at the Chateau Laurier and the Fairmont property that's there in Winnipeg. And not just that, they were staying in like the gold level executive rooms. So they're really sparing no expense, uh, even though it's coming at expense to taxpayers. And this is where we're saying, folks... We're more than a trillion dollars in debt here. Uh, inflation is going crazy. Part of the reason why inflation is going crazy is because of the deficit spending. So everybody has a responsibility to stop wasting taxpayers' money, and this is clearly wasteful. I, I guess, as far as the, what, reading your article, this is actually, uh, according to the Mint's own travel expense policy, uh, members of the board, senior management, are explicitly allowed to stay at the gold level. So this, mm-hmm. isn't, this is sort of permitted uh, by their own rules. Just because it's allowed doesn't mean that it's right. You know, it should pass what is a common sense test with a reasonable person. So should a reasonable person expect someone who's already making tons of money uh, working at the Mint to stay exclusively at the Chateau Laurier. And what's interesting is they tried to give the excuse or the reason, saying, oh, well, it's only a few blocks from the Mint. And anybody who's lived in Ottawa, as I have, it's right down the yeah. street. You just head down yeah. that way. Now, yeah, it's, it's actually hard, harder to take a taxi than it is to walk. But, but they still did. They still yes. took taxis between the Chateau Laurier and the Mint because they tried to say, oh, well, this saves on taxi fare. So we A-tipped the taxis. Turns out they were still taking taxis. And so this is where it just shows you that this is just disregard for taxpayers' money. And then they tried to say something flippant like, oh, well, the Chateau gives you free Wi-Fi and free breakfast. Well, I stay at the you know, Holiday Inn and they still give you free Wi-Fi and free hot breakfast. You know, they have to come up with a better reason than this, and it should be, you know what, this is too rich for the average person's blood. We're going to scale down the amount of money that we're spending on flights, which were all business class, and fancy hotels. Yeah, you found a few other examples here that I'm sure listeners would be curious to hear about. So it was taxis for that very short walk. And understand, if you're standing in front of the Chateau Laurier in Ottawa, mm-hmm. it is a hundred times faster to walk to the Mint than it is to take a cab because it literally has to go around, right? It's not. Oh uh, yeah, we're not you too. Can fa- see yeah, it. It's, <laughs> like you, you can, can see, see it, it from where you're standing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you found a few other examples too, and, and keep in mind this this is the board, right? The, this is the the board of the Mint. So they're coming from different parts of uh, of the continent, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, At one point, uh, board member Fiona McDonald had billed more than $5,000 to get back and forth from San Francisco to Ottawa in November of 2019. Uh, We also found that they were flying to other parts of North America. And the reason why they were doing that is that apparently they were commuting from homes that they own in other fancy places around North America. 
and then billing us for it to come to the meetings. So again, this is not, you know, your average working Canadian's life. Um, and that's fine. We know that we employ and have some special people working on these boards, but they should also keep in mind the little guy and the person who's running the till, the person who's driving the bus that is paying for their night at the chateau. Especially with prices. I mean, this fast forward to now, prices are going up, airfares are going up, people are probably, if there was limited tolerance for this three years ago, there's probably even less tolerance for it. Now, you mentioned it briefly earlier, but the Mint did respond to you. Uh, They did come back to you with some reasonings behind how this works. You mentioned a few of them. Uh, How would you uh, sort of sum up what it is they were telling you? Because the way I read it was like, you know, there's nothing wrong with this, please go away. Yeah, that's how I read it, too. In fact, I got a distinct whiff of we're entitled to our entitlements, as folks who famously... Speaking of famous mint comments. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that fun, right? No pun intended. Um, Double mint. (laughs) So (laughs) they are entitled to their entitlements. And it turns out that they never stay... Just give you an example. So sometimes you can get like a smoking hot deal at a Fairmont place if it's the last minute or something like that. They never once slept in a room that was cheaper than 300 bucks, sometimes as far as $800. So these are gold level rooms. And the, the tone I got back and my colleagues got back through filing these access information uh, requests was that we're entitled to this and go ahead and pay. And again, if this, does, if this upsets people, um, they should phone their MP and, and phone the finance minister, phone the treasury board minister. And say, you know what, this is not an acceptable use of my tax dollars, and I expect you to rein in spending. And it is possible. You know, back when, you know, the Reform Party first started, it was unheard of for a member of parliament to fly what some people call coach. They were always flying first class all the time. That changed. That changed the culture when the reform Preston Manning got in there. He said, no, no, all of my MPs will fly coach. Now it's standard for every MP of every party to fly coach and not bill taxpayers a gross amount. Um, Here in British Columbia, W.A.C. Bennett, one of the most beloved premiers of the province, he personally negotiated major labor contracts down to the quarter because he thought it was important. He made his staff get his permission to make a long-distance phone call because he respected taxpayers' money in that way. And so we're calling on this to become the norm again, the culture again in Ottawa, because we frankly can't afford it otherwise. Yeah, I was just reading some of what they told you about board directors will often have a complimentary breakfast with their morning meetings. When their morning meeting schedules allow it, private and secure business facilities allow board directors to continue working together outside of scheduled board meetings. I, I, I don't mean to cast doubt on that, but really, really, are they are they working that? Like, are these, you know, complete 14-hour days? Are they hammering out some sort of major business here where they need to be around each other all the time? I mean, I don't blame them for staying at the, at, at, at the, at the Fairmount if they can. I mean, obviously, it's nice, but sure. it's, not their, it's not their money. But it's is it officially money. required all the time? Um, you and no. I, with experience in media, we've been on the road a lot. We know what it's like to work on the road. And frankly, you've got free Wi-Fi and free breakfast and boardrooms that you can book. We just finished booking one for our Teddy Waste Awards. It cost about right. 200 bucks. You know, it's it's possible to save money uh, while still getting your work done. Yeah, I mean, I've stayed at I've stayed at many a bad hotel that had that had Wi Fi <laughs> <Exactly>. and breakfast. <laughs> uh, so where to? I mean, you know, I obviously this uh, FOI, all this information dated back to before the pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly, I don't imagine they've been traveling much since. Uh, but this does seem like an opportunity now that travel will no doubt resume, and it's going to be more expensive. One gets the impression uh, yes. this will probably be an opportune time to sort of look to review these uh, these particular um, you know these particular policies. I would imagine. 
Yes, you hit the nail on the head. And we're hopeful, especially now that a bit more attention is being paid to this uh, spending, that they can go look back and say, you know what? Um, yeah, the last two years were awful for a billion reasons. But did we learn something from it? Maybe we can do a lot of this by Zoom. Maybe we don't need to be jumping on a first-class jet all the time. Uh, probably uh, it's better for everybody uh, if we could just save some money and do this remotely. And then when they do need to travel, just rein it in a bit. You know, we're not asking them to sleep in their cars. We get it. But can you at least drop it down to a Holiday Inn? Or at least don't stay in the gold room. At least don't take a taxi two blocks. Just pare it down. Or if you know your meeting is coming up, if you're meeting, I mean, these meetings aren't impromptu, right? And they could book these things months in advance if they wanted to. Uh, but I mean, we've all worked with, I mean, I've worked within corporations as well. I mean, it becomes yeah. sort of a reflex. They're like, oh yeah, just a, we're all headed to Winnipeg, just book the Fairmount, right? I mean, that's what you do. Sure. Uh, I, I think it's that reflex that we're, that we're hoping. Are you, are you confident that there'll be any, any reaction to, to this? You know, if enough normal people, average working people who are listening right now, they say, you know what, that's kind of gross. I think that that's a bit excessive. If enough average people write in their own words an email to the minister responsible, so the Treasury Department or the Finance Minister, Christy Freeland, be polite but be firm, make a point, say that this is a waste of my money, it will trickle down. Those of us who've worked in government, I've done so as well. For every one email you get, you assume a hundred other constituents feel the same way. Same thing as a caller on a radio show. And if enough of us call and email, it will get down to this board. And they'll say, hey, fellas, let's scale back on the caviar here and stick to a bit more canned tuna. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, yeah, the holiday, the day's in is nice at this time of year. And if, if all of us can stay there, then, you know, uh, Chris Sims. It's right uh, downtown good, by Rito Center. There's, there's like is, four it's actually hotels e right there. It's actually, there are actually easier <laughs> hotels to get to the mint from. Yep. Then the Chateau Laurier, as nice as as nice as it, and it's not even that. I mean, no offense to Fairmont, it's a nice looking hotel, but there are other hotels are just as comfortable. They're just as well. and way more Chris, functional. You know, it's not a big grassy castle. <laughs> exactly, Chris Sims. Thanks so much for your time today. Anytime. Take care.